Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Jeffrey Maurer. Jeffrey has been a comedy writer, a speech writer, and a stand-up comic, and he's now a Substack writer. He was the senior writer for John Oliver's show Last Week Tonight, and his Substack is now called I Might Be Wrong. We talk about the rise of political comedy in America. We talk about how political polarization has changed American television. We talk about the problem of preachiness in comedy, both on the right and the left. We talk about the fine line between funny and offensive. We discuss the mechanics of joke writing. We talk about the culture of the comedy cellar, which is my favorite comedy club. We discuss the importance of laughter. We talk about how wokeness hurts the Democratic Party. We discuss the cancellation of Winston Marshall, formerly of the band Mumford & Sons. We talk about how Democrats could win in the midterms. We talk about gender pronouns, audience capture, and much more. So without further ado, Jeffrey Maurer. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on my show. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Uh, Can you give my audience a sense of who you are? I know you used to be the senior writer for John Oliver's show, but like, you know, start from the beginning. How did you get into comedy and comedy writing? And then how did you come to be a person with opinions about politics and and a Substack? Oh my God, you made it like a deep existential question, (laughs) far beyond a biographical question. Who who am I? I I don't know. The answer is I don't know. But uh, let's start with the nuts and bolts. So in my mid-20s, I I had recently got back from the Peace Corps and I was looking for a job. I didn't have one yet. And I thought, well, if I'd always loved stand-up. And I thought, if you don't start doing stand-up when you're 25 and unemployed, then when the hell are you going to start doing stand-up? So I started doing stand-up and I had no plan beyond, uh, let me go to an open mic and see if I can not embarrass myself. I failed at that plan. I bombed so hard my first time out. But luckily I did a second show and that one went a little better. And then it just kind of kept going. Um, I eventually got a job. I uh, was a speechwriter for the Environmental Protection Agency for almost nine years. That was my uh, life for about nine years. Uh, I was a speechwriter during the day and a stand-up comic at night. And then eventually, you know, one thing leads to another. You kind of, you know, you get spotted in a club and somebody says, hey, submit a packet to this thing. And then that leads to submitting a packet to the next thing. And eventually that led me to submitting a packet for last week tonight with John Oliver when he started that show and I got hired. And then I was there for six years and then it became time to go. So now I write a Substack called I Might Be Wrong. And I'm thrilled that I was able to get the plug for the Substack in there in the first like two minutes. That's professional podcasting, in my opinion. But yeah, so that's the that's like the basic career path. But how I became interested in politics, I don't know. I mean, you start out as like a very annoying teenager. I was because I grew up in a pretty conservative area, the Tidewater area of Virginia. So I was a really obnoxious, like lefty teenager, just like everything's so corporate. Everyone's all racist. And everything's corporate and bad. And then you grow up a little bit. And I'm, I'm still on the left side of the political spectrum, but I try to purge that petulant, self-righteous 16-year-old from me at least a little bit. And I don't know. It's just, just my area of interest. I, I basically know three things in my life, politics, comedy, and soccer. That's it. Everything else, don't ask me about them because I don't know. 
Yeah. So I first encountered your, your article about Clapter before I knew who you were on persuasion. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. And I guess my background for this purpose is that I've done stand-up comedy maybe four or five times. I've done a few open mics, not seriously and not, at, not in any kind of sustained way, but right around the time that I got into writing long essays for Quillette, I was also sort of obsessively going through a phase of working on jokes and doing open mics. And, um, in the meantime, I'm, I'm, you know, a big fan of comedy and I go to the comedy cellar all the time. And, um, I, I happen to be really good friends with the owner there. So I'm, I just end up hanging out there all the time, seeing shows, sometimes hanging out with comics and do they let you, uh, to the table upstairs? Do they let you sit at the comics table? I've been at the, I've had the honor of sitting at the comics table maybe twice in, in my life, which is, is it's a very special feeling. They don't often let non-comics sit at the comics table. It's usually, it's, they don't. Esty can sit there because she yes. owns the place. And uh, one time I saw Gloria Steinem there <laughs> and was, she was there with Amy Schumer. And that mm-hmm. was one of those nights when I was like, oh, this is too cool for my blood. And I just kind of slunk in the corner and didn't, <laughs> didn't say anything to anybody. Yeah. But it's a great room. I, I, people should go to the Comedy Cellar. If you want to see comedy like as it should be done, stand-up comedy as it should be done, the Comedy Cellar is great. It's one of the few landmarks in New York mm-hmm. that like still actually is the thing that it claims to be. Like Grimaldi's mm-hmm. is not you know a, a pizza place anymore. It's a tourist attraction now. A, mm-hmm. The Comedy Cellar is still a working, functioning comedy club. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's really my favorite place in the city. You've been, I think, critical of the culture of writers' rooms at political comedy shows like the one you used to work at. And you talked a lot about the rise in political comedy, right? Like political comedy used to not be a thing. And then in my lifetime, it's there's been an explosion of shows that mix comedy and serious or pseudo serious political arguments that alternate between pure laughs and preachiness in a way that audiences really relate to. And I, I'm, uh, I'm glad that you think uh, pure laughs is still part of the mix. I'm flattered that, <laughs> that you're still including mm-hmm. that. A lot of people would say that part has uh, faded away entirely. Yeah, but I guess I just want to start by talking about that trend. Like, we'll, we'll, you know, you've worked in, you've been in the writer's room for these John Oliver, for the John Oliver show, at least. Was there a cognitive dissonance for you at that time of not totally loving what you were doing or feeling that the preachiness was not serving the show? Or at that time, were you totally into what you were doing? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a tough one to answer. So you're right that I've written about, well, Clapter, you know, sort of message replacing comedy. And uh, I, I don't think I've really been, I, I'm not sure if I've been critical of the writer's rooms. I've been critical of, you know, the environment generally, which includes, mm-hmm. you know, Twitter and just any pressure you could imagine that a comedy writer might feel. And to give the very, very, very brief history of this genre, for decades, the model was the Johnny Carson model, where you talked about the news and it was sort of the compendium piece to the local news because he came on right after the local news. It's like you get the local news and then you get Johnny Carson's take on the news. Uh, So it was a lighthearted take, but you didn't know Johnny's political opinion. Nobody ever really knew where Johnny Carson stood politically. I think to this day, I don't know how he voted. That was the model forever. And when Letterman came along and then Leno and Conan, they all stuck to that model. But then in the late 90s, John Stewart did something which was really innovative at the time. And, you know, it's like there are other political comics. Bill Maher was around at that point. But John Stewart started giving his actual opinion on The Daily Show. And it was kind of revelatory because 
it was an added element, you know, we get the comedy and then we actually, we're also getting commentary, you know, it's like an op-ed column or whatever. So that became a new thing. And then the new thing really proliferated when you got eventually Colbert. And then last week tonight came around and, you know, now there are many shows. It's like Colbert, which replaced Letterman. Now that's a political show. Seth Meyers has become political. You got Full Frontal with Sam B. And then, you know, many who have you know, kind of come and gone. It's a whole genre now. It's a thing. And you're right that I do sometimes feel, and again, this is more about like comedy generally than late night shows specifically, that sometimes the message is replacing the laughter. I always thought of last week tonight, we were cooking with two ingredients, right? You got the the commentary and you got the humor and you'd use those two ingredients in different amounts. But it does seem like sometimes now the it's, you know, very little humor and all message. And then there's also the question of like, what is the quality of the commentary? <laughs> all commentary is not equal. Some of it's really insightful and then some of it's pretty trite. It does feel sometimes like the commentary is totally crowding out the humor in a couple cases. And I'll tell you why that happens is because writing a joke is really hard. That's really hard. But just having an opinion on something is super easy. And we don't only really see this in late night. You know, we see this in the world of, you know, I've got a sub stack. Everyone's got a sub stack. You know, you do a lot of writing. It's easy to have an opinion. There's sort of a proliferation of opinions. And I do think those are kind of starting to crowd out the comedy sometimes. I, I, the, the way I like it is I like a balance. I like a balance. And I also like comedy that's just comedy. I mean, I'm a huge Conan fan. I love Conan. I love just how silly it was. But also being a political person, I would watch Conan. And then I would also watch Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. How much of that preachiness, like, did it bother me? You know, I have to admit that I was responsible for a lot of it. You know, some of it is you're, you kind of grow up as you're more involved in that world and you feel honestly like less insecure about losing your job. When that stuff starts to happen, then you do start to take a step back and think, you know, okay, what are we doing here? Is this any good? And it's always a challenge. It's always a push and pull. I think the challenges we had at last week tonight were, I would imagine similar to the challenges that happen at any media organization, whether it's CNN or the New York Times or just any place that is putting out content related to politics. You got questions about, are we being honest here? Are we being balanced here? Is this interesting? Is this good? Is this insightful? And I think sometimes we did pretty well. And I think sometimes we totally shit the bed. It was a real mixed bag, as it is at probably every organization in the world. And, you know, all your listeners, they probably have opinions about these shows. Either they're, you know, diehard fans or they have been sickened by them long ago and never watch. And I'll tell you, as somebody who was on the inside, I don't have any simple answer for you to the question of, are these shows good or bad? Like, it's mixed. It's a mixed bag. <laughs> there are people doing good stuff and there are people doing shit. That's my opinion. It occurs to me that the change from the Johnny Carson model to the modern model, it definitely tracks a broader change in, in polarization in the country. Like in 1985, 1990, you have a lot of households in America where dad's a Republican, mom's a Democrat or vice versa. It's not viewed as weird. It's totally normal to have a household of mixed political affiliation. When you turn on the TV, you want to see a show. It makes sense to create a show that is you know, less political. Nowadays, we have this extreme polarization and clustering and self-sorting by politics where like it's uh, a lot of people, they just don't even know a single person of the other party, not by any concerted choice, but just by where you live and how people sort by job and, and by geography, by subculture. And so people are getting married to people that agree with them about everything. Relationships are ending based on political differences at a much higher degree than they used to. And it makes sense that there would be 
a proliferation of TV shows that cater to smaller markets with more specific, narrow political values. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you were to ask, okay, why is this happening now? Probably one of the big parts of the answer is just because of this splintering of media. You know, Johnny Carson was back during the days of the monoculture, as they say. You know, he had three TV networks. You can watch ABC, NBC, or CBS, or you can go fuck yourself. You know, those are your options. So if you're Johnny Carson, you can't you can't do a show that alienates a big portion of the country. You have to get a gigantic slice of that pie. But then once things start breaking into cable networks and, you know, now the internet, we're seeing this in print media now with Substack kind of disrupting, sorry to use that word, but <laughs> disrupting, you know, Substack the New York Times disrupting. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> disrupting, disrupting. Though people are also sometimes offended by the very word Substack. Uh, but yeah, disrupting. It's just such a dumb tech buzzword. But the point is, you know, the old ways of doing things are breaking down. So you no longer have to get a very big slice of the pie, you can get a you can get a really narrow slice of the pie. You know, as if your audience is deep but not wide, that's fine these days. So you can have one cable news network, MSNBC, that's like, we're the liberal network. You want the true blue talking points? You come to us. And then you've got Fox News and they go, we give you the red talking points. And now Fox News is breaking, you know, One American News and Newsmax is like, well, but what if you... <laughs> But what if you got some really interesting opinions? Then where do you go? You go to us. So yeah, it's largely a result of uh, of that splintering, I think. And it does make me worry because another thing I write about, so I'm 41. I would say the big political event of my lifetime would be, in my opinion, watching the Republican Party slowly lose its mind. Think about it. I was 14 in 1994 when Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House. That is, for many people, that's an inflection point in the history of the Repo Republican Party. So that's also the point when our... I'm becoming roughly aware of what the hell's going on in the world. And I feel like I've slowly watched them get weirder and weirder and weirder to the point where, you know, and then eventually they nominate Trump. And at this moment, there's a notable, you know, anti-vax contingency in the Republican Party. You've got QAnon people inside the tent. And you go, whoo, that is rough stuff. What happened? And my very simple explanation for what happened was the media ecosystem. Fox News, AM radio, they kind of created this very partisan kind of fact-free media zone that has rotted the Republican brain. And I worry very much about that happening on the left. I worry about that happening on the left because, you know, now you're, now you're talking about me losing my home. And there are certainly like signs of worry. And I and I, I do worry that the media ecosystem is getting so because, like you said, you can go long periods of time without encountering anybody with a different opinion. So that encourages groupthink that encourages just going along to get along. And uh, I think that's you know, really not healthy. And I do worry about it sometimes. Yeah. And this notion of clapter I thought was really good. And it's something I've seen a lot having watched a lot of comedy. I also used to watch a lot of comedy at Columbia and they had, there's, you know, there's comedy clubs and comedy groups that do basically comedy by Columbia students for Columbia students, highly progressive. Okay. I did uh, not know that. That's sure. <laughs> I <yeah>. think of, <laughs> I think of acapella groups when I think of uh, Ivy league entertainment. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure that comedy is much better than the acapella. I have thought of this. What a damning statement, by the way, arguably not better than the acapella groups. <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> you just cut their throats. Yeah. Well, the thing is the clapter, which is, you know, the, the sort of, instead of getting people to have sort of like a deep belly involuntary laugh, like that really good 
kind of laugh where you can't help yourself. You can't help but laugh, right? Even if you think what was said was like somehow wrong, you just cannot help yourself, but you're just, your diaphragm is moving without your say-so. Those are the really, the deepest kinds of laughs that comics want to be getting. There's this other thing you call clapter, which is, and you'll see this in a lot of, a lot of comics acts, which is they'll say something praiseworthy, something, they'll say something that's not strictly speaking funny, but that enough people in the audience agree with that you'll get lots of claps and woos, but very few laughs. Yeah. Sometimes it's almost, it's like you're bullying the audience into responding to it. If you say something like, like you know, teachers should be paid more. It's like, oh, fucking fine. I, yeah. Okay. It's like, I don't, like, don't, don't want to look like that asshole not clapping at that. Exactly. What, what do I think? Teachers should be paid less. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Do I That's hate not babies? What, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so yes, people do respond, but uh, that is absolutely not necessarily the same as having a good time. And, uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a cheap way to do things. And I didn't invent the term clapter, by the way. Clapter is a, that's a comedy term that's out there. Oh, I, I, I didn't realize that. I know, no, no, I no, no, I didn't invent. It. Well, it's, it's, yeah, stand up, say it. Because we needed, ask John McWhorter, like how do words develop? Words develop when you have a need for them. There became a need <laughs> to describe mm-hmm. this thing where people, yeah, like in stand up specifically, but it can apply to any type of comedy. You have to get a response when you're doing stand up, right? Mm-hmm. You have to get a response. To, and you've, I'm glad you've done a few open mics. That's silence. It burns. It oh, burns. Yeah. And you can, you can feel it right. eating at your skin. So you have to get some response. Right. But laughter is hard to come by. So if you can't do laughter, then yes, just say something that everyone agrees with. And then at least you don't have silence. Laughter, getting clapter doesn't feel at all like bombing. And I think it's hard to relate. I mean, people can imagine the humiliation, but the humiliation of just thinking a joke is hilarious and going up there and saying it and the punchline just is crickets. It's mortifying. So, so can, can I can I ask these five open mics? How did they go? You know, actually, I didn't bomb. Congrats. I, I, I didn't kill either. OK, but I did solidly. But no, OK, not total silence. I, I think it, yeah, in no. early shows, not total silence counts as not bombing any reaction whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Other than clapping. Is, uh, yeah. Yeah. Is bombing. Now you didn't make the giant mistake that a lot of people do and invite 30 friends to your first show. Did you? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. That's because you're a smart guy. I see that sometimes at open mics people. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's way too much investment. Thankfully when I was bombing in my early days, I was bombing in front of nobody I knew. So uh, right. at least I didn't have to like explain myself afterwards. Yeah, but I think the temptation to go for clapter is just, especially if your audience is ideologically homogenous, like say you're a comic doing a show on a college campus, not a professional comic or, or maybe a professional comic. It's like you kind of know the students will clap if you say anything progressive. And if you're an up and coming comic, the temptation to mistake that for comedy or to mistake that for being really well liked, I imagine it could be very tough for people who maybe don't think about this the same way to distinguish that from actually making people laugh. It's like, oh, well, they were applauding me the whole time. Maybe I'm really good at this comedy thing. And and the problem with that is the second you go to an ideologically mixed audience, like at the comedy cellar or whatever, you have tourists, you have New Yorkers, you have you know, all kinds of people, or God forbid you go somewhere, you do what every stand-up comic has to do and tour the country and play for rural audiences and, and so forth. All the stuff that got one audience to clap for is you're, you're going to lose another audience on. And that's where it becomes difficult because had you been really trying to be funny from the start, funny is usually funny to a broader range of, of audiences, but the clapter is really politically specific. You know, I never had 
too many political jokes in my stand-up act. And people are often surprised by that because, you know, it's one of my main areas of interest. It's what I studied in school. It's where I've worked for basically my entire adult life. I had very few political jokes. And the main reason for that is because I was, you know, going touring some, not, I was never like a road dog, but I'd get out of, you know, the Northeast corridor. And, but even within the Northeast corridor, the minute you start talking about politics, half the audience goes, you know what, this is not a thing I'm interested in. It's, it's just not something I follow. I don't really know what you're talking about. So you've already lost half the audience. The remaining half, if your joke has any edge to it whatsoever, if it was anything beyond, you know, back in the day, you could do like, oh, George W. Bush isn't very smart. And people, you know, even Republicans would concede, all right, he's not that smart. But any, any edge beyond that, any commentary beyond that, anything where your actual viewpoint is known, then you're going to lose half of the half. So now you're down to talking to one quarter of the audience. So it generally doesn't work. But, and this is an important but, yeah, then sometimes you'll get into rooms, you'll get into these really progressive rooms in Brooklyn. You know, it's, it's just some Brooklyn bar and everybody's 25 and they have an ironic mustache. And yeah, you can you can just say something that is something they agree with and get that clap their response. And then, you know, I worried about this on last week tonight. And it's a trap I admit I fell into sometimes. I would kind of, I'd get kind of self-righteous and think, you know, what I'm saying is important. What I'm doing is important here. And I would, it's like, I wanted to do comedy that wasn't just, hey, what's the deal with soup? Have you seen how many flavors they have? It's like, I wanted to do something that was a little sharper than that. But if you do it wrong, then it does just become, hey, here are six talking points I read earlier today on the Daily Coast. And I want you to clap every each time, all six times when I say them, I want you to clap. And I'm going to count that as a segment. That is the form done wrong, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm, I only object to progressive preachiness. I think what is true of me is that when I see a stand-up or anything comedy related, I generally prefer it to be pure comedy. So for instance, when I saw Dave Chappelle's latest special, where the majority of the special is about one topic, trans, and within that, the ratio of pure jokes to actual points that Dave Chappelle thinks are serious and deep observations was like, I don't know, it felt like one-to-one or maybe two-to-one or even three-to-one. And that was a real turnoff for me. Even when I agreed with him on certain specific points, I just felt like this is not what I'm coming to a comedy special for is your, your commentary. And I think the truth is most comics aren't that good at commentary, at serious commentary, even Chappelle, or or at minimum, they're not nearly as good as they are at jokes, right? So the quality of the show goes from here when they're making jokes to here when they're making commentary, and it's noticeable. Yeah, I agree. I mean, no, that's why the people who can actually do it are, you know, legendary. You're, mm-hmm. You know, Mort Sauls and George Carlin's is like, that's why we remember them, because they could actually do that. But yeah, I'm, and for what it's worth, like, it's hard for me to be objective about Dave Chappelle because he was huge to me back in the day. One of the funniest shows I've ever seen when I saw Dave Chappelle when I was in college and it was, I mean, he was an absolute murderer back then in comedy terms. Oh, of course, of course. But he he was so funny. Killing Them Softly is to this day one of my favorite specials. So funny. That was a special that got me into stand-up comedy at all. Yeah, that's, yeah. 
that's one of the huge ones. It's one of the huge ones. And uh, he's one of the on, the, on the very short list, you know, of like people who made me think, I want to do that. Um, but yeah, the, the last special, you know, there are many, many, many opinions about it. But one thing I think most people agree on is like, not as funniest, not as funniest. And that's certainly mm-hmm. where I fall. Eh, not as funniest. I, I certainly didn't enjoy watching it. Yeah. I mean, half as much as Killing Me Softly. That one was way funnier. Right. But I think it was it was not funny for the same general reason that Nanette was not funny, which is that too much of it was not composed of jokes. It was composed of points that the comic thought were very serious and interesting to them. But again, most of the audience in both cases, most of your audience are going to find your points to be shallow. If you're a comedian who spent, you know, 30, 40 years figuring out how to be super funny, but not, you haven't really spent 40 years figuring out how to make good arguments that the, that are controversial enough to be meaningful, but uh, not so controversial that you lose the majority of people you're talking to. They're like that, a hard skill too. So I don't know. I'm not really sure if I can defend this sort of purist approach to comedy that you should only make jokes. And I'm not even sure that's what I believe. You know, I think if you're going to make a serious point, you should be really sure that it's profound enough to justify the departure from comedy. And I think people probably don't do that as much as they should. Yeah, I, I completely agree. If you can do something that is, you know, an interesting comment, an interesting statement, and it's maybe a little funny, but not very funny, like that's a thing too. Some people are going to be very into that. I mean, definitely. I mean, when I was at Last Week Tonight, and now that I'm writing my Substack, there are definitely pieces like they're not the funniest things I've ever written. But like, I still think they're good because I, th- I still think there's something there. Like I said, you're kind of cooking with two ingredients. You got the commentary and you got the comedy. Mm-hmm. If you're using, yeah, if it's, if the commentary is less interesting, well, then it better be funny. And if the commentary is pretty interesting, then you can dial the comedy down a little right. bit. And yeah, I agree that the, the real problem comes when you're kind of doing neither, right? right? Maybe the commentary is shit and then, and then those are coming in place of the jokes. Mm-hmm. Then it does become a case of, yeah, why am I watching this? And it also a little bit punctures your image of the comic as the master of sort of everything, right? Because you see them say something dumb and not funny dumb, just kind of dumb dumb. And then it punctures the the air of invincibility that is kind of, or, or whatever air of their, whatever persona they're going for. It's like, oh, he's just kind of another dumb, just, he's just like another normal person, you know? And it's, it's funny it's a bit of, It's a bit of a meet your heroes moment. Yeah. It is, which is, um, and I always remember the arguments that comics make really seriously that strike me as, as really bad arguments. So for instance, I remember in Nanette, I forget what, what her name, uh, Hannah Gatsby or something. Yeah. Yeah. She made it's not argument. Nanette. It's confusing. Her name is Anna Gatsby. Yeah. Right. Right. She made the argument that, you know, Harvey Weinstein type behavior. She basically talked about Harvey Weinstein and said, well, this is the norm for men. And I was like, what do you talk? This is precisely news because of how abnormal his behavior is. And like that, that's the moment she lost me because it was so clearly a point that didn't, she wasn't engaging with the counterpoint. She wasn't, this is just something that compels her emotionally. She wanted to say it. And to a portion of the audience, they're just, they're just going to be like, they're just going to be lapping it up. In the Dave Chappelle case, he, he made an argument that women view trans people like black people view blackface, which I think is, is factually not true. I mean, like if I saw you walking down the street with clear blackface makeup, I think every black person would be like, what is wrong with that guy? 
Whereas most, not certainly, certainly not all women see every trans person and say, what the hell is wrong with that person, right? They're, a good portion will view it as a civil rights issues, whereas no black people will view someone wearing blackface as like a civil rights identity, you know, so. Right. You, you, kind you, of things if if you're people. trans, one would, one would hope you have a, at least a chance and one would hope you can actually do this, uh, going about your day and just going about your day the way anyone right. would. You're right. If I put on blackface, I think the odds of me getting through my day. <laughs> would be quite low, <laughs> you know, right. for justifiable reasons. I, I don't frequently do that. So I want to talk a little bit about the challenge of being funny without being offensive or the notion of offense in comedy, because I think there's a, a misimpression that people who don't know how the sausage is made uh, have, which is, I guess, two things. One is that you don't really know where the line is and until you cross it and dial back, right? Like you don't know what people are going to find too offensive until you bump up against the edge of it and sort of roll it back. And there's also just a really fine line between funny and offensive. There's like the classic Louis joke where he says the word Jew is either a racial slur or a totally okay word, just depending on how you pronounce it. And that's true of phrases. That's true of ideas, like how you present something. Very subtle differences that can be the difference between a hilarious joke and an, and an offensive joke. And then there's the final point, which a lot of people don't know. And I, I'm curious if you would agree with this, which is that in most cases, comics do not know which jokes are going to be funny until they utter them for the first time in front of an audience. It's kind of a crapshoot. That is a thousand yeah. percent true. That is the most true thing in the world. It's like true of music too, where like we all know what the hits are in retrospect, but there are these great stories of like Al Green did not think Let's Stay Together was going to be a hit. He was like, I don't know. This song kind of sounds, I feel like it's not my best. And can you, and Drake didn't know God's plan was going to be a hit, right? And in retrospect, you're like, everyone knows it's a hit. Radiohead's Creep by Radiohead was released twice. It was released yeah. by a single. It did absolutely nothing. Then it was released again on the album and became a huge hit. Right. So, and, and jokes are like that. They are absolutely like that. And I have honestly, I stunned myself, <laughs> you know, through the course of my comedy career, how I didn't really get much better at that. I got a little better at guessing. You know, there are some things you can kind of key in on, but I never got good at guessing. Literally, the only way to do it is to tell it in front of an audience. That's one of the reasons when you see a TV show, those audiences are so amped up and it's a good goddamn thing because they will laugh at anything and they have to because all those jokes are, you know, more or less, I mean, you had rehearsal, but more or less first run. Mm. Yeah, you never figure it out. You never get a good, or at least a, a completely accurate horse sense for what's going to work and what's not. You absolutely have jokes where you, sort of like you described, you're thinking like, oh, this is killer. Oh, I've fi I finally done it. You know, this is this is my moment of inspiration. This is like when Paul McCartney woke up with yesterday in my head. This, this is that. And then you go and you do it at a show and the audience just goes, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And you throw it away and you never use the game again. That happens all the time. And it does affect like how edgy you can be because you're right. Being taboo, like that's funny. That's one of the, th breaking taboos is one of the funniest things you can do if you do it right. And if you go to a comedy club, you'll see this. One of the funniest things that happen is, can happen is that a comic will, will go there and talk about things that don't normally talk about. A big part of the fuel in the laughter bonfire at a comedy club, it's very often very proper, very subdued women in their 50s and 60s laughing really fucking hard at dirty sex stuff mm -hmm. because their life just doesn't involve them talking about things right. in that way. And then the comic gets on stage and talks about it. And then they just, it's like liberating. They're like losing their shit because somebody's breaking that taboo. That's a real thing. 
you know, and then there's the cheap way to do it. Much like there's a cheap way to do clapter. Like you can just get up and think, you know, list off the dirtiest things you can think of. And that's not funny because you're cheating. But yeah, breaking taboos is a big thing. And when somebody does it properly, it's really, really funny. And that is one of the reasons that this chilling atmosphere that is kind of descending over comedy or has descended over comedy, however you want to look at it. That's why it makes that proposition a lot riskier because you don't know where the line is. You don't know where the line is. There's this gigantic fuzzy range of where the line might be. And that range exists not only for the comic, but also for the audience, because the audience, if the comic starts tiptoeing into areas where the audience isn't sure if they should be going. Then the audience is going to clam up and they're, it's sort of the opposite of like, hey, give it up for teachers thing. It's sort of like, oh, I don't even know. I don't even know if you should be talking about this. So we're just, no, please move on to something else. It makes it so the range of stuff you can talk about is just, it's just a lot more narrow than it used to be. And therefore the taboo breaking is a lot less. It leads to just kind of safe comedy. I mean, this is the article you're referring to on my Substack is um, called how the religious left is turning comedy into Christian rock. And I do feel that it's kind of the same thing. Cause again, I'm from a religious area and a lot of people where I grew up, like they're into Christian rock and the promise of Christian rock is that it's super safe. And that's becoming in some cases, the promise of comedy as well. It's super safe. We're not going to go outside these bounds. We're not going to break any taboos or challenge anything. And personally, I think you're, you know, taking a lot of stuff that's potentially funny off the table. So my sense, though, is that that's not actually happening yet because people, you know, like so long as there's any semblance of freedom, the comics and there's always going to be a big demand for comics who break those taboos, because as you pointed out, breaking taboos is a constitutive element of comedy, right? It's not like breaking taboos is sometimes happens to be funny. It's like part of the definition of funny or one of the core elements of funny is precisely breaking taboos. If Netflix doesn't want to give Andrew Schultz a deal or something, he would on YouTube. So, so far as there isn't some, isn't a blanket censorship across the board, people are just going to pop up on other platforms because there's going to be a hunger. It's going to create a hunger for that kind of taboo breaking comedy that will pop up. And in my experience at places like the Comedy Cellar, where, and I, this is increasingly the norm for comedy clubs, where they take your phone at the door and put it in a, in a sealed bag. So comics really have no reason to fear that if they do fuck up, if they do cross a line in one show, it's not going to ruin their careers. They're not going to get canceled for it. The jokes, I think, are just as taboo breaking as they ever were. I think you're making a great advertisement for the Comedy Cellar. Mm. Because for people who you know don't live in New York and aren't... Um, you know, don't know this world closely. By the way, the comedy seller, for people who don't know, that's the room you saw at the beginning of Louie. When Louie, the show Louie on FX, when he would get off the subway and get the slice of pizza and go into a comedy club, he's going into the comedy seller. Yeah. And it very much has that, that vibe in New York of it is still, the rules are a little different in the comedy cellar than they are in other, other parts of the world. I mean, there are lots of good clubs, but the taboo breaking is still very much part of what's on the menu there. Um, the phone thing, by the way, is, is partly because, yeah, I mean, somebody will try to cancel you for anything and it's silly, but it's also because comics are like working, they're working material out. So they don't want somebody tape. And this is like a totally reasonable concern. They don't want somebody taping a half written bit and then posting it on the internet and going, wow, this famous person isn't really funny. It's like, well, yeah, this is because the bit's not done yet. <laughs> when you see them do it on HBO, it'll be finished. Right. Um, but I do think you make a really good point about these kind of currents that I talk about sometimes we've been talking about here, other people, I'm far from the only person to notice that it does seem to be getting a little bit puritanical sometimes mm -hmm. in comedy. Yeah, those are currents that exist, but they're, you know, they don't dominate every space. 
and they don't dominate the comedy cellar and they don't dominate other spaces. And you're right that there's a thirst for taboo breaking sometimes and stuff that doesn't necessarily play by the rules. If you're trying to figure out why Joe Rogan is so enormous, certainly part of the answer is he doesn't give a fuck about any of those tab- taboos. And, you know, people find that refreshing. That's one of the yeah. reasons he's been able to build an audience. Bill and Burr, I try Andrew Schultz, a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to, you know, on, on my sub stack, I try to, you know, play by the rules that I think are fair. You know, I obviously have to stand behind whatever I write, but, uh, you know, there are some, <laughs> sometimes I trust my audience to just know, like, it's a joke. You'll, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think you can, in 99% of cases, you can trust people to be adults and know when a joke is a joke. Right. So one of the things that I think perpetually insulates comedy from censorship is that laughter is far more honest and tamper-proof than praise for your argument, right? If you make an argument that deep down I don't agree with, but I feel enormous pressure to agree with, it's very easy to fake agree with you. If you're a comic and, and you know, what, what's even more important, it's easier to fake disagree with you. Right. Like if you're if you're making a totally valid logical point that goes against my politics, it's trivially easy for my mind to just give me this aversive reaction to what you're saying. Bypass the logical part of my brain and just like, fuck you, fuck this. And and basically to not concede. It's very easy to not concede a good point. It's virtually impossible to not laugh at a funny joke, even if that joke goes against all of your sort of political biases. So, I, I mean, I've this has happened to me countless times. And it's, it's also happened to people I know with really woke politics, for instance, where it's like a comedian will make a joke and the direction of that joke politically is the opposite of everything you believe. But it's, su- and it's not a preachy joke. It's just an extremely clever joke. And you can't help yourself. You're just laughing because it's so funny, even though you disagree with the underlying point that's being made, right? You know, you're making me want to go back to stand-up because <laughs> I, <haven't, laughs> I haven't done stand-up since COVID. But you're right. That feeling of involuntary laughter, of legitimate laughter, where like you put it, you couldn't not laugh if you were trying. That is such a freeing feeling. And I feel like that happens most often I would say live comedy is probably the best venue for that because stand-up to me is a weird thing. I mean, there's so much bad stand-up out there. Right? Well, mm. There's a name for this. Somebody has this yeah. quote, 90% of everything is crap. Uh, I forget that. That's like somebody's postulate. Mm. But it sounds to me like one of the most true things in the world. And that is true, including of stand-up. But God damn it, when stand-up is good, live stand-up comedy, you've had exactly the right number of drinks, something in the two to three range. So you can still follow it, but you're Feeling a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) There's certainly, there's a bell curve there. You can go way too far with the drinks, but Mm. yeah, when you're in that sweet spot and the comic is good, you, I mean, that is the hardest you will laugh in your life. That is the hardest you will laugh in your life. I remember, you know, again, that Dave Chappelle show. I remember doing that at Lewis Black. I remember doing that at Patton Oswalt. I mean, it's, you're out of control and it's freeing and it's enormously fun. And what you're describing, what I, what I was thinking about, that, that's an interesting point. I hadn't heard that point you just made about how sort of the laughter is involuntary, but the choosing to agree or disagree is voluntary. Those seem like polar opposite states of being <laughs> to me. Like the one where you are, you know, 
gripped with laughter and you can't stop and it's just happening to you and it's, you know, you're in convulsions versus a state of being where you're, you're measured and you're controlled and you're thinking very strategically about what you say next and what you do next. It's like, God, that sounds like a type of prison. You know, we all live in the second state for, you know, a good, good portion of our life, you know, maybe not that extreme, but like we do have to be living in a society here and be polite to each other. And that's good. But I don't want to live in that all the time. And uh, certainly when I walk into a comedy club and buy two, two drinks minimum, I would like to be freed from that straitjacket, please. On the topic of offense, I think that, well, I'll say I'm pretty close to a free speech absolutist. I'm very pro free speech. And I think there's this misimpression that people like me just never get offended. And that's why we're pro free speech, because like we don't understand what it's like to just hate something somebody said and to childishly wish that they they get somehow socially punished for saying it. And I can say having gone to a lot of comedy shows in the past three, four years, I do sometimes get straight up offended by things people say, like they cross a line that maybe it's a line I didn't even know I had, but it's just like that was not funny to me. And sometimes they're, my friends are also offended by those jokes. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes those jokes do really well in the crowd and it kind of makes me angry that more other people aren't offended by it. But I'm never under the impression that because I was offended that I somehow have the right to stop the show, heckle the comic. I somehow have the like an obligation to put this comedian on blast on social media. People will, you know, I, I know my, my friend owns the comedy seller. He'll get emails from people all the time saying this joke offended me. This comic is offensive. You know, and again, I think it's, it relies on a kind of misunderstanding of the nature of the craft. It's like these people, they're doing a high wire act. It's like criticizing a high wire act for being dangerous the danger is a, a part of the thing itself, right? Like going towards what's offensive is not a choice that you can sort of choose to do or not to do with comedy. It's part of comedy. So it's inevitable that sometimes people are going to hit your tripwires, whatever they are. And I think it's immature to say, well, my offense is so much more important than everyone else's offense that my offense should be like enshrined in our social norms and comics that violate my offense should suffer. You know, this is why I used the phrase the religious left in that article, because it does strike me as the religious left at times. You know, the extreme versions of this type of behavior, it's not a left wing behavior. Anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the form of it that I was familiar with growing up was the religious conservative version. Because again, that's what most of the people around me were. And it was very much the same thing. They didn't like stand up for the exact same reasons. Hmm. This person's saying something who offends me. You know, they're it, bad words a lot of the time. And hey, you are completely within your right to have that opinion. It becomes a problem when you're trying to impose your view of exactly what's acceptable on everyone else. And not, you know, not in a light-handed way at all in a very heavy-handed way where you're, yes, the most extreme version of it is writing to Gnome at the Comedy Cellar and saying, don't have this comic on again because I didn't like the thing they say. But you're right. It is, you. we all have the right to be offended by something. And I'm the same way. I, I'm close to a free speech absolutist. I mean, pretty close, certainly on that side of the spectrum. But yeah, I get offended by stuff. And it's kind of what you were talking about earlier with the, you know, meet your heroes moment where a, a comic you were, you like, and then they say something pretty dumb and you're like, well, but I didn't like that part. That does happen. You don't lose your right to feel that way when you're watching stand-up comedy. But I, yeah, I do think a broader space to say, 
to say what you want to say is definitely healthier. And especially when we're talking about stand-up comedy specifically, I mean, everyone has to understand <laughs> when you get on that stage, the rules are a little different. Things need to not be taken quite so literally. You know, you say, take my wife, please. You can't have people in the audience go, he hates his wife. He just, he just advocated his wife getting kidnapped. That is like the single most annoying form of Twitter justice is pretending to not get a joke so that you can get offended. That is, oh, that is just next level. Again, I am for the wide berth. I got to say this. I enjoyed your interview with Charles Murray. I liked it. I, and I don't agree with Charles Murray. And one of the things I liked about that conversation was I think I have a better understanding of specifically why I don't agree with Charles Murray now. So yeah, I'm with you in that I don't think trying to shut people down is going to lead to better ideas and a better society. I just don't think that works. I think it can occasionally be good at silencing specific people. You know, Milo Yiannopoulos, you don't hear much from him anymore. Uh, specific people, but then ideas, I think it almost never works for silencing ideas. So even if I did agree with the concept that, you know, a very heavy hand in terms of what people can say and what's allowed is appropriate, is, a, is an okay thing, is conducive to good comedy, even if I I believed that I would not think that would have any success in terms of like getting rid of ideas that I don't particularly like. So there's another point you make in your Clapter article that I thought was really interesting. You were talking about how Conan's show was just pure comedy, no politics. And in America, we're losing a political spaces. There used to be a lot of spaces where you can just sit out of politics and that share of the ecosystem is shrinking day by day. I mean, we're talking a few days after Eminem rebranded their mascots to be sort of like gender inclusive and they, they dropped the Mr. and the Mrs. And there was the, the, this, you're not allowed to sexually fantasize about Eminem's anymore. Right. It's off, it's off the table right now. Yeah. And, um, so you know, like as if, as if the people at Eminem's that are profiting off of giving me diabetes, give a shit about, gender equity. Right. But, um, and then there's obviously the, the way that becomes the, the main story in right-wing news. Um, look at the left being crazy again. This just classic dynamic we have. That happened to, uh, occur the week I was writing an article for my Substack about the show Gutfeld, the mm -hmm. new political comedy show on Fox. And I, that happened. I saw the tweet and I was like, oh, here we go. This is going to be all <laughs> Gutfeld is this week. And sure enough, it's like they have a mole. It's like Fox News has a mole. And some of these corporations yeah. are like, give us some content. Come on, do yeah, something weird. Exactly. Like, oh, we'll deliver. M&Ms are gay now. Um, <laughs> here's, here's each M&M sexuality and here's what they're into in bed. Right. <laughs> they're sex positive now. And they're fucking Skittles. Mm -hmm. But the point is, certainly in the George Floyd protest age and beyond, no corporation cannot have an opinion, right? To not have an opinion is to side with the oppressor in silence and violence, right? And you make this point that we're losing apolitical spaces. And uh, the way you phrased it, I thought was really, really nice. You said that, you know, the political scientist in me is sorry to lose a non-political space. Democracy needs those in order for democracy to be tolerable. You know, that's a that's actually a very deep point. I don't mean to say actually as, as if you don't make deep points. But, you know, in a non-democracy in China, say politics, politics doesn't really dominate corporate corporate world or entertainment world because it quite literally dominates everything. Right. It, it has a vice grip. So paradoxically, politics threatens to creep into everything 
from M&M's Twix, because we're a multi-party democracy with freedom of speech and freedom of association, and it, it can feel more suffocating even though we have more freedom and even though politics is more suffocating in a place like China, right? Like there's no stand to take on. The CCP runs everything and you're fucked if you criticize them. So in a way, there's nothing to talk about, nothing to fight about, actually. Where in America, there's always something to fight about. And that means there's always a risk of people feeling they have to plant their flag or saying, you know, Spotify can't stay out of politics. They have to either choose between Joe Rogan and Neil Young. And then it just creates a feeling of suffocation where it's like, where can I go to stay away from the political? You can spend all day lighting those fires and you have a clear incentive to if you happen to, you know, work for a cable news network or, you know, some other, you know, TV show where you have to find that kind of content. And now that I'm in the, you know, independent media substack space, it's like very clear that you can make a name for yourself just, you know, fighting culture war battles all day and all night. But it, it does get tiring, doesn't it? And, you know, people do want to break, especially from the bullshit. It's like, we're going to have a new Supreme Court justice. That's news. Russia has troops on Ukraine's border. That's news. M&M's, can I just not do the M&M thing, please? I would be fine if that was not part of my life <laughs> at all, at all. Either part of it, either the press release or the reaction to it. I just don't give a shit. So yeah, you do need space to like, just take a minute and get perspective and do realize, oh yeah, wait, I don't care about the M&Ms. And you know, I talk about comedy a lot because I'm a comedian and that's what people ask me about. And that's when people want to know my opinions on things. I don't want to give the impression that like, that like I've had it with political comedy and I'm through with, I mean, for Christ's sake, I'm still writing political comedy. <laughs> and I really liked it. This is such an old man thing to say. I liked it the way it was 20 years ago. <laughs> I liked it the way... It's like everyone says the best SNL cast is the cast that was on when you were 14, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I liked it when I, when there was Conan and there was no politics in that whatsoever. It was just funny and goddamn was it funny. But then I also watched The Daily Show and The Daily Show was funny and there was politics in it. You know, it was a different thing. I feel like a good world would have pieces of both. And yeah, it, it's, things start to feel <laughs> things start to feel constraining when it does feel like, oh God, we've only got the one flavor now. This is the, no matter what network I flip to, no matter what show I watch, this is what it's going to be. I do think soonish somebody will probably create a Conan type show, a Conan level funny show, and it will be gigantic. Yeah, yeah. Because there's probably huge demand for apolitical stuff. I think people are tapped out. But you do make this point that in a lot of your Substack articles that, you know, the gender neutral M&M type stuff actually does have an effect on people's impression of the Democratic Party. Even if no Democrat comes out in support of it, right? Even if Democrats don't come out in support of something like defund the police, the fact that there is an energetic movement of people on the left that have a lot of cultural and social power that get outsized attention and aren't loudly condemned, let's say, by Democrats, that has the effect of besmirching the image of the Democratic Party somewhat unfairly, let's say. Let's say it's an unfair reality that a Democratic senator is seen to be aligned with the party of gender-neutral M&Ms and defund the police, even if they personally think those are impractical and or ridiculous, have never supported it, you're seen to be affiliated with it. And that matters when it comes to the fact that Democrats are potentially looking at losing a lot of Senate seats and not having a governing majority for the foreseeable future. And this gets into, I had David Shore on the podcast probably over a year ago at this point, to talk about his prescription for 
how the Democratic Party should go about, you know, winning. And so can you talk a little bit about what you think of basically the brand of the Democratic Party and how that can suffer via these culture war crazy events? Yeah, this um, I wrote a three part series about it because you actually summed up the uh, the gist of that series pretty nicely. It does seem that brand is enormously important these days. It's and some of this thinking is very David Shore inspired, by the way. So I'm glad you brought him up. Brand matters. It matters, you know, just kind of like wh- what group of people do people feel like they want to be a part of? Do people want to hang out with Democrats? Do people want to be a Democrat, say they're friend? Yeah, I voted for the Democrat. Is that a good thing? Is that a cool thing? And this does matter to me because, you know, I fall on the left side of the political spectrum. So, you know, I'm not a diehard party man, but I certainly, you know, that's the party I always end up voting for. So it really does matter to me, you know, the things that I want to see happen, the things that I want to see happen in terms of investing in people and climate change. I think we should have a lot of immigration. Like that's not going to happen if Republicans are dominating Congress. So this stuff does matter to me. And I think the brand matters a lot. It matters do people think you're cool? <laughs> do people want to hang out with you? And I do think Democrats have a big problem of, you know, there's this very annoying type of progressive activist. Just imagine the worst type of progressive activist. I mean, imagine like, you know, the morons in Portland who are trying to burn down that courthouse, right? who aren't even Democrats. They're like this, you know, black block anarchist thing, you know, walk around chanting, fuck Joe Biden. And yet they get tied to the Democratic Party. And that's partly because right wing news media is really good at finding these clowns and putting them on TV and saying, whoa, that's what the left side of the political spectrum is. You know, do you really want to vote for those guys? That's a tried and true political tactic. It works. And I do think that Democrats would benefit a lot these days from just calling stupidity, stupidity, the most ridiculous things. We don't need to swing in every pitch. It is unfair a lot of the time. When I wrote those articles, it was right after Terry McAuliffe got beat in Virginia. He lost the governor's race to Glenn Youngkin, the Republican. Right before that happened, Twix created this weird woke commercial that was like, it's a Halloween commercial for Twix. Let me say that one more time for Twix, Twix candy bars. And it had like a pro-trans message that was executed in a really ham-fisted way. I did picture like being in the Terry McAuliffe campaign offices in that moment and just thinking like, God damn it. So this is my problem now? I don't have any control. I'm running for governor of Virginia. It's it's probably like worth describing the video to people. It's like, I I just watched it. It's like two, it's like a two minute commercial. And it's, uh, I guess a a little boy as in a biological male dressing up in, in a dress. And he has a baby, like a goth babysitter. Is a goth babysitter. Yeah. And, And, uh, oh, it's probably just best to watch. I linked to it in the article. The article is called why everyone hates the educated left. It's on my sub stack. I might be wrong, but yeah. So the goth babysitter she has very, like she has like witch powers. There are so many pieces to this. <laughs> <laughs> Just as, as we're describing this 90 second commercial, it's pretty clear that things have gone off the rails because there are so many pieces to this. But yes, she has. It's implied that she's a witch. And it's also implied that the kid is trans, even though mm-hmm. it's just a boy in a dress. Boy in a dress, not necessarily. I actually trans. didn't even notice it was a boy in a dress until the end of the video. Oh, yeah, OK. Well, then there's interesting. Uh, reason number 6,812 why this ad doesn't work because if they had, <laughs> they had a message and you missed it because you were focused on the goth babysitter's witch powers. Correct. Yeah. That, I thought yeah. that was the center of the video. So Gage, moving into act three of this 90 second video, the witch and the kid are at a park and the kid starts getting bullied for wearing a dress. You know, the bully's going, why are you wearing a dress? You're different. It's weird. And the witch summons her witch powers, witch nanny summons her witch nanny powers and blows the kid away. She summons Augusta wind and blows the bully away. 
And I did think one, some people were like, it's bullying. Uh, you know, you're like, did she kill that kid? I thought it was like, well, it's kind of cartoony. I, I did also yeah. think the way you're supposed to do this in TV or whatever is you're supposed to show the kid at the end, like stuck in a tree, but okay. Yes. So that, so that's the moment I was waiting for. Like what, what I thought was weird about it is, so the kid says like, he bullies the kid for like 10 seconds. Right. And it was mean, it was bad, but it was about 10. And also doesn't mention Twix, but yes. Yeah. To, it, yeah. And then the, <laughs> the witch just like disappears him and they don't show him like blowing away. Like, Oh, he got stuck in a tree. He's just gone. And his like clothes are left there. Like, did she, <laughs> did she kill a kid after 10 seconds of, of can- anti-trans bullying? Your candy commercial has what? gone so far off the rails. If the question <laughs> people have at the end is, did a child just die? Yeah. Did I just see a child? And like all the al- get all the alternatives here, like be a bigot against trans kids or different kids or like kill the kids that are bigots. Like surely there's a middle ground. (laughs) Surely there's a middle ground. It's also, it's such an easy fix. You just show the kid at the end in a tree. Fine. Right. But yeah, they didn't know what they're doing. It's, it's funny. It's a, it's a great hate watch. Your broader point is that this kind of stuff influences people's picture of Democrats, whether one likes it or not. Right. Right. Whether you like it or not. And I think the best thing you can do uh, if you're on the left is when something stupid happens, call it stupid. I mean, I think that's a stupid ad. One point about that and another point to make after this, but you know, when you call something stupid, when you call out the excesses of the, uh, the excesses of the left, the left is very quick to destroy you. Parts of it are. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you've, I mean, you've got, I mean, you were kind of, you know, you were right at the center of the storm there. I know. So, right. So let's take the example of, did you use the sort of Antifa Oregon Portland people as an example before? Right. Uh, I, well, I used them, you know, just now in this podcast, I'm not sure I've written about them. Right. right. I mean, they're obviously clownish. Yeah. So I think of the example of Winston Marshall, who was in the band Mumford and Sons, and he tweeted approvingly a book by Andy. No, the whole book was the thesis is Antifa's bad, um, which is not that controversial, actually. I mean, I think Andy knows a guy that had been physically assaulted and sent to the hospital by Antifa, if, if I remember that correctly. You know, these are violent goons that use their ideology to justify violence. So he basically tweeted a link to this book and he was like, hey, this looks like a good book. He says something like that, very just kind of a, a light compliment in passing. And he got the band came out under so much criticism that he basically he wasn't fired, but he left of his own accord because of just like how much scrutiny the band came under for that one tweet. And that's part of the challenge of the left calling out excesses on its own side is that no one wants to end up the next Winston Marshall. And just a few examples of those can create a really um, destructive norm of never criticizing your own for fear of being eaten by your own. Yeah. I hope people don't underestimate just how real that feeling is. (laughs) I feel it. I felt it at last week tonight. You know, there are things that you just sort of know if you talk about them in a certain way you might get a lot of shit for it. And, you know, because the the sort of decent, well, sort of decent is probably giving it too much credit. But sometimes, you know, these cases, the Mumford and Sons guy, David Shore was another high profile cancellation. You know, James Bennett got pushed out at the New York Times, Don McNeil, the, the guy at Apple who wrote the book. You know, there are these, you know, high profile cases of somebody getting a lot of shit and then maybe getting fired for something that makes a lot of people go for that. And one response to that is, 
Yeah, look, you know, James Bennett got forced out. He's no longer the op-ed editor at the New York Times. He's not going to go live in a refrigerator box on Skid Row. He's going to get another job. And okay, David Shore, it, because it got so much attention and people realized, holy shit, this guy's really smart. <laughs> I think it's actually been good for his career. So like, I do hear that in the terms of like, what problems exist in America? You know, there are a lot more serious problems than no longer having your job in the New York Times. I get that. I hear that. Understood. But it's this thing that you're talking about here, the chilling effect, the realization among so many other people that like, holy shit, I could be the next Munford and Stunts guy. I could be the next David Shore. And it gets really crazy when it's like not famous people, when it's people who are not in media, people who are not public figures in any way, shape or form could get in trouble for something pretty innocuous. Just if it's not even if there's a broad movement against them, just if like just enough people on Twitter decide this is an axe they want to grind. Yeah, it's unhealthy. And bringing it back to comedy, it affects comedy. It's just a constant question of do I want to say that? Is that worth it? Does this exist on TV shows? Yes, I wrote on a TV show. I felt it. You know, you can say that maybe I was the paranoid one. Maybe I was maybe I shouldn't have felt pressure that I was feeling, but I can tell you that I was feeling it and it did affect. I like to think I like to think I tried to ignore it as much as possible. But yeah, there are absolutely times you go like this joke. It's usually just offensive jokes, right? Mm -hmm. It's a joke that somebody somewhere could consider offensive. I I mentioned this in, in one of the articles. At one point, there was a joke that was deemed too offensive to the state of Florida. And I went, okay, like this is if you can't make fun of Florida, a joke that Florida, by the way, loves. Florida is totally in on that joke. Florida man's a thing. You go to a comedy club in Florida, they're going to be they're going to be a little upset if you didn't even mention that you were in Florida. <laughs> they're totally into that joke. We couldn't say it and uh that does kind of make you think, have we gone slightly insane? I think maybe we've gone a little insane. Yeah. I mean, there's this the point you make though about the all of these culture war excesses affecting the image of of Democrats. I think also goes the other way, right? Like I think Every mass shooting with a gun that is legally purchased hurts the image of every Republican politician, even the ones that are more moderate and or centrist in their opinion on gun rights. Like just being the party that is in general against relative to the Democrats, at least against gun control measures. You know, every time someone goes and shoots up a school, it's bad for the image of every Republican, fairly or not. You know, obviously the Capitol riot is horrible for was horrible for the image of Republicans and uh, fairly or not. And so it seems like this is definitely a point that goes both ways. No. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, no question. If you are a Republican and January 6th is happening and you're not out there saying as loudly as you possibly can, Holy shit, stop this. This is insane. By no means can this be allowed. Everyone break it up, go home. And then I would add to that personally, I think you should not try to steal an election, whether you're doing it by violent means or nonviolent means. If you lose, you lose. I think that's a pretty core democratic principle. So yeah, absolutely. If when bad shit happens and you're not out there <laughs> loudly saying bad shit, well, then if somebody ties it to you, well, then I guess it's kind of fair, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I'll bring up one example. When Charlottesville happened, we did a piece on Charlottesville that week on Last Week Tonight. And Trump, you may remember, he gave this press conference where he was surprisingly soft on the 
people who marched in Charlottesville, the, you know, hard right, I don't know how you want to characterize them, but the hard right Nazi might be a fair term, but there are at the very least hard right people marching in Charlottesville. And Trump gave this press conference where this is the one where he famously called them good people on both sides. If you watch the whole clip, it's a little more complex, but he was way softer than you would expect. I thought we were totally right on the show to criticize him for not loudly and clearly saying these people represent something that it's awful. It, we can, it cannot be mainstream in America and they're violent, which is also unacceptable. And we did do a piece that was 20 minutes long that basically said that I wanted in that piece to have one beat, exactly one beat in a 20 minute piece that also pointed out, by the way, also Antifa folks, when Nazis are out there marching, don't show up and fight with them. That doesn't help anything. Don't bring your stupid homemade blowtorch and your goddamn mask and your motorcycle helmet. That doesn't help anything. Don't do that. Stay home. I felt like that was a completely reasonable point to make in that moment because we were rightly criticizing Trump for not criticizing his side. I thought we should criticize, quote unquote, our side. That beat didn't make it in. You know, beats don't make it into pieces all the time. That's not really weird. But I do think I do think it was a feeling of this just isn't kind of the right thing to say at this moment, which is unfortunate because it ended up being more skewed than it needed to be. I think in the interest of staying true to the principle of denouncing, quote unquote, your side when your side is doing something crazy, which is, by the way, by far the more effective form of denunciation than the opposite. I mean, if a Democrat points to Republicans, is that Republicans doing a bad thing? It's like, well, that's what they say all day, every day. And the opposite's also true. Democrat criticizing Republican, Republican criticizing a Democrat means nothing. It, that just bounces off of everyone's heads. They're like, okay, yeah, that's just dog bites man. That means nothing. When somebody's criticizing their quote unquote own side, I think it has a little more purchase. I think it it means a little more. And yeah, I think it's something that that needs to be done to, you know, maintain the health of your own side. Make sure you're moving in the right direction. I think this is why Bill Maher is, is so good at doing this. Like, you know, he's the type of guy that in that moment would put the beat in about Antifa. And a lot of people like sort of roll their eyes at that. But it occurs to me from reading your piece, actually, you had some graphs that showed Bill Maher's ratings are usually better than all of these other shows. And I'm curious the extent to which that kind of like never criticized our own norm, which is probably popular in the subcultures of these writers' rooms. To what extent is that bad for ratings? Are they do they have a norm that is actually bad for them, or is it also are the incentives aligned? No, my guess, and this is only a guess, is that it's bad for ratings. It's really hard to, with, with ratings. It's hard to tell. You know that those ratings were from my Greg Gutfeld article, which you'd be shocked how many people are watching Gutfeld. It's a lot mm-hmm. of people. Mars, okay, just steady. Mars numbers have been. You know, I've worked in TV, so I've been looking at numbers for a long time. Mars numbers are pretty steady. He's got his audience. He does his thing. He he does not give a fraction of a fuck at this point. And yes, that is appealing to a lot of a lot of people. He doesn't. He'll he'll say what he thinks, no matter what you think of Bill Maher. He says what he thinks. My guess is that an a highly self censuring perspective. My guess is that that is on the balance bad for ratings. There may be room for like one or two shows that hue very closely to the, you know, the true blue talking points and they never color outside the lines ever, ever once. There might be room for one of the, one or two of those. I mean, as I said before, like MSNBC is a thing. MSNBC, you know, they don't totally kill in it, but it is a successful network. Maybe space for one or two of those shows. They're kind of, we have kind of <laughs> fallen into this thing where there are like, I don't know, five or six shows offering a pretty similar perspective. Maybe the market's a little overly split, uh, you know, splitting the pie six ways and nobody's got a big enough slice at this point. It's hard to tell because there are two dynamics here, right? There's like, is the show successful? Are people watching the show successful in the you know traditional terms of 
Like, are people watching it? Is it making the network money? That's one question. And then another question is, the people making the show, are they succeeding in their own environment? And I'm talking about like office politics here. I'm talking about advancing your career. Are you going to advance your career if you get hired at a show or if maybe if you've even been at the show for a while, but especially if you get hired at a show and you come in and say, you know what? I disagree. And just, you know, every day it's a new thing. I disagree about that. I think we're being a little myopic here. I think we've got tunnel vision. Is that going to make you popular? Is that going to advance your career? No, it's not. It's a lot better to come in and this makes some logical sense and go, I know what this show is. I know what we do here. So you know what I'm going to pitch? I'm going to pitch more of the stuff that we do here. And that dynamic, it's going to cause the show to kind of self-perpetuate. So I do think that's happening sometimes. So even if the question of, is this good for ratings? You know, that one, I don't know. It might not be. But even if it's not, the internal office dynamic is probably going to keep shows producing a lot of the content that they have been producing prior. Right. And it's also possible that once you curate your audience that, you know, Trevor Noah suddenly starting to do more Bill Maher type stuff might not be good for Trevor Noah. It's like he might, does he actually expand his audience? Do new people start to like him? Or does he just lose part of his audience? Right. It's not obvious. It's risky. It, no, nobody knows. I haven't watched The Daily Show recently, but I have heard he's like changing things up a little bit. I know they went through a huge format change. They mm-hmm. definitely did that. In terms of perspective, I, yeah, I don't know. Perhaps he's Noticing the thing that I'm noticing is like, Jesus, there are six shows saying the exact same things. (laughs) Maybe he's thinking he's going to mix it up. Yeah, I don't know. So going back to David Shore's critique of the Democratic Party, I want to deal with this a little bit more because I think it's, it's really interesting. There are basically two opposing views about how Democrats should try to win strategically. So just take it as a given that one is a Democrat and wants to win. In a country like America, there are two views on how to do that. One is to win over swing voters, to get independents and moderate Democrats that can be poached by Republicans and to somehow make them more likely to vote for Democrats than Republicans. And you could disagree about how to do that. Is it like we talk more about stuff they like or we just don't talk about stuff they don't like? Whatever. That's one broad category. And then there's another category, which is actually our strategy should not be to win over swing voters that might go Republican or Democrat. Instead, let's try to get as many people voting for Democrats as possible. Let's try to increase the turnout, right? In America, you know, like roughly half of people don't vote, right? And at the margin, there's a group of people that if they're going to vote Democrat, right, but they might not vote at all. They have to be excited, to get out of bed and vote for someone. And so there's a strategy that just appeals to mobilizing those kinds of people and increasing your numbers that way, as opposed to winning over swing voters by showing them that you're not too lefty, right? And David Shore believes that the Democratic Party is doing too much of the second strategy and not enough of winning over swing voters. And I definitely think there is a culture within the electoral politics community of being way more excited about mobilization uh, than winning over swing voters. I don't think winning over swing voters is viewed as as cool if you're like a 25-year-old person working in electoral politics in the Democratic Party. You don't want to be the kind of David Shore-esque character. It's just a little bit harder to function and be seen as cool. Another interesting part of that is those two strategies wouldn't exist in a place like Australia that has mandatory voting, where like voter turnout is like 90 plus percent. Mobilizing wouldn't work, presumably, because everyone's sort of already voting. But in America, where nobody votes, 
you can have this this kind of disagreement about whether to like hammer and get excited about super progressive candidates as opposed to winning over the proverbial guy that lives in Michigan and like voted for Obama once and Trump once. And so what do you sort of make of that, those two strategies? I feel like this question can probably be answered. I mean, the way you framed it, if we assume that the goal is to have Democrats win, and we're just framing that as the only goal, I feel like that question can be answered statistically. And I think that it, to my mind, it more or less has been answered statistically by, you know, people like Nate Silver. You know, these are not popular people on the far left, but people like Nate Silver and uh, Matt Iglesias. Josh Barrow's written about this a little bit. I feel like the, you can do it all through turnout. I feel like that argument is on extremely shaking, shaky footing at this point. I think it's quite clear that swing voters, though they are, you know, much smaller in number than they used to be. No, I don't think anybody's debating that. You have to convert people. That's simply how it works. No, there are not a ton of these people, but there are enough like you said, Trump to Biden, Biden to Youngkin, if you're in Virginia, voters, there are enough to make a difference. I think that's a statistical point. I am aware that like when I'm saying, you know, Democrats should loudly and proudly say, look, Antifa, these people are nuts. I, they don't represent us in any way, shape or form. Defund the police. That's the stupidest three words anyone has ever said. We don't want any part of any of that shit. Easy for me to say, because that is what I think. So I, it's what I believe. And I am also arguing that it's good politics. So I'm very aware of, you've probably heard the phrase, the pundits fallacy, Mm -hmm. which is where the pundit believes that everything that they believe is also good politics. I I worry about that. That is why I go to the statistical case that people like, again, Nate Silver, David Shore, Matt Iglesias are making, which I think still, I, I think it's pretty conclusive in my mind. You have to win over swing voters. You have to do it. I would also point out that the people who are saying, no, you can just do it through mobilization. I think they may be the ones engaging in you know, what you might call the pundit's fallacy and that they're the ones, look, that viewpoint is another way of saying we don't have to make any compromises ever. Everything we love, everything we're for from Medicaid for all to forgiving all student debt to, you know, any list of, it's actually, if you think back to what we were talking about, during the Democratic presidential primary, it's insane when you imply it to like what's actually going to happen today. It's like, should we spend $10 trillion on green infrastructure? It's like, this is all going to get filtered through Joe Manchin. Why are we debating uh, how big of a Medicare for all system we would like? It's all going to go through Joe Manchin. We are, if we're lucky, going to get beefed up Obamacare subsidies. That is the cutting edge of this debate. But you don't have to engage with that cutting edge if you are of the mindset that it's all about turnout. You can do it all through turnout. It can become a form of magic pixie dust that you can just sprinkle on everything and go, look, popular revolution, socialist revolution. It's around the corner. It's going to happen this time. As soon as people figure out how great these ideas are, we're going to have gigantic turnout and we will ride that to victory. I do think the extreme form of that argument, and you know, I, I admit that I am giving the cartoonish form of that argument, but I do think it's a form of wishful thinking. I personally don't find it persuasive. And again, I do think that the numbers suggest that you can't just do it all through turnout. You do have to win people over. Uh, There's also, I mean, one thing that's compelling about David Shore, and I think if Matt Iglesias agrees here, that kind of argument is they're usually making a lot of points that someone like me would agree with, right? And you can worry about the pundit's fallacy. Like, isn't it convenient that I really hate defund the police? And I also think defund the police wouldn't get Democrats elected. What a coincidence that all of my opinions align with the opinions that would win. 
I actually don't think David Shore is saying that because many of the policies, or at least a substantial amount of the policies that he thinks are popular to swing voters are not economically right-wing or not economically moderate. Like there are certain policies that Bernie would support that are pretty popular and that actually mainstream Democrats don't talk enough about. So, and then of course the stuff that really swing voters don't like, they definitely don't like the far left race and gender stuff. But there are plenty of, uh, at least some far left, if you could call it that, in terms of sort of Bernie style economic policies that would make Democrats more popular if you talked about them more and that Democrats have a more popular stance on than than Republicans. So, and I'm not even sure I would be for all of those policies. So it, it seems like, it definitely seems there is a strong case to be made for Shore's perspective here. And it's, it's one that Democrats definitely have to sort out if they don't want to lose a bunch of Senate seats later this year. And, and you know, I, I'm glad that you pointed out that this idea that, you know, we should talk about things that are popular, it doesn't clearly break down into right wing and left wing views. I feel like the straw man response to that argument is, you know, oh, well, you just want us to become more conservative. You just want the really bad form of the argument is like, you just want us to adopt the opinions of some racist white guy out there. No, we're talking about things like the child tax credit, which I think is, I think it's a good politics. I just wrote a piece about it. I think it's good politics. I think it's good policy. I think it's a thing that would help people get by. So that's the type of stuff we're talking about. And I think you're also right that the God, we lack words for this. But yeah, the extreme lefty activists, race and gender stuff. What do you want to call that? I don't know. I use the phrase religious left works for me. Intersectional left is pretty good. Intersectional left is good. Yeah. This is, John McWhorter needs to get on this. Come on, he's a linguist guy. Give us, please give, give us a new. He did the elect. Okay. The elect, Apologies yeah. to John McWhorter. He did. Okay. But the policy, when he's talking about the elect, he's talking about the people I've talked about in pieces. It's this weird Weird's pejorative. It's, it's this left, far left-wing activist set. One strange element of it is that it is overwhelmingly white. You know, like that should not be lost. It's not entirely white, but it's like overwhelmingly white. And they have these views on race and gender that I think they're, you know, poison in terms of electoral politics in ways that we're maybe not totally grasping. You know, if you talk about, I just mentioned the child tax credit. Tax credit's always a little fiddly. You know, people got to figure out, okay, wait, so I'm going to get how much money and when, but under what conditions? You know, it's tax policy. It's a little complicated. Even that's a pretty simple one. But if you start start talking about, you know, other things I support, like the earned income tax credit or how we should be supporting capital gains taxes, you know, you're rightly going to get a big what from people because you're getting pretty far in the weeds at that point. It's hard for people to really feel that stuff. It's hard for people to really get what you're talking about. But when you have a press release where we say the M&Ms are totally different, people get that. People understand that. When, you know, the really extreme stuff about, you know, sex, biological sex is entirely a construct. You know, that does cause people to go, what? We really lose people when we talk about that stuff because it's salient. They get it. You know, they get that that's that they get that defund the police is a little nuts. So I do think that the hymnal that the I'll go back to the term the elect are reading from. It's just another language as far as most Americans are concerned. And I don't think most Americans are wrong. It's a weird, weird, weird. There's that word again. I apologize. Well, it's no, it, it is tough to talk about it without using that word. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, cultish like, and it's weird. It's, it's worst forms. It can right. get that far. When I look at how Orthodox Jews live in New York, I can recognize just how different a subculture it is from my own. It's, you know, they're speaking Yiddish and 
I couldn't just go to a party and feel comfortable. It would be no comment on them as people. It would be a comment on just the massive gap between my culture and theirs. Like when you go to a party and half the people there go by they rather than he or she, not quite to the same extent, but there is a feeling of alienation of like, let's say this is the first time you've been around a they before. After all, people that go by they are probably less than 1% of that, like really reliably go by they are probably very small part of the population, right? And it's very counterintuitive to retrain the way you speak English, definitely past a certain age. So let's say you're in an environment like that. It's really uncomfortable because Everyone there that's like been going to a progressive college and been doing this, been practicing the they, the gender fluid speak for years, and it's almost second nature to them. For you, it's not second nature. And you're not really sure how important it is in terms of actual social justice. Like it doesn't really feel the same as Selma, but it's like it's presented as if it's the same as Selma and getting it wrong marks you as a bigot kind of in the same way as being opposed to Dr. King would have. So it's like it's sold. There's a big distance between how it's sold, how important it's being, its branding is being portrayed as, how really genuinely difficult it is to not feel alienated doing it. And so it is, I'm sorry, it's weird. It is weird to people that are not, that don't come from it. And um, foreign is, does that make it better? Yeah, it's, it's weird. I mean, I'm trying to not be insulting to my opponents, but but yeah. Yeah, I mean, if there, and what's more, like if there were a really clear logical argument for it, it would be so much easier to sell. Here's the soundbite reason why it's extremely important for you to call me they, right? But the problem is, the arguments for it are very fuzzy. They don't, they're not simple. They're as convoluted as like the argue, like theological arguments about the nature of God and like how many genders there are, like how many angels can live on the head of a pin. And when you're trying to convince people to do something really weird and different, it matters that you have like a really simple argument for it. So like say what you want about vegans. If you want to call vegans weird, you can. I don't think it's that weird. But they have a very straightforward argument. Animals are capable of suffering. To They can feel pain like humans feel. And to the extent that we can, we should not eat them and not factory farm them and not kill them, not cause them to suffer. Say what you want about that argument, agree with it or don't. It is very simple and it's very logical. The argument for gender being a social construct is neither simple nor logical. It's uh, like the moment you press on it, it's like unclear even what the argument is. There's so many disagreements from people within that camp and it's extremely hard to get one's head around why it's as straightforward a social justice issue as like racism, for instance, or Jim Crow. I admit to losing the thread on that sometimes and perhaps that's my (laughs) fault. I do try to follow it, the difference between sex and gender, which I Mm -hmm. think I understand, Mm -hmm. but then it does seem to some people, and again, it always depends on who's making the argument, you know, a better version of this argument is probably out there somewhere, but yes, it seems it's also, it's often, there's a difference between sex and gender, but then gender is all that matters. And that one is totally subjective. And that is an argument. If nothing else, it's not simple. You are going to lose some people. I mean, I'm more worried when the discussion doesn't even happen. I noticed, so earlier you made a joke uh, about me walking around in blackface. And you, the words you used, I think were something like, if you walked around in like clear black blackface, you said, which now tell me if I'm wrong, 
it sounded there like you were making a distinction between like blackface, like Al Jolson would wear blackface, like minstrelry. And on SNL 20 years ago, when somebody would be doing an impression of a specific person and they would wear makeup and it wasn't Al Jolson blackface, but it was bronzer to look like that person. Like Fred Armisen bronze to look like Obama. Right. Daryl Hammond played Jesse Jackson back in yeah, the day. Yeah, that, that is the distinction yeah. I was making. That is, yeah. I thought so. I thought so because you're the type of person who thinks about these things. But that's just broadly a conversation that didn't ever happen. It's a little weird. It didn't ever happen. And people called up all these old clips and acted like there was no distinction. And like, I'm not even taking a position on what exactly the rule should be. I'm just noting that we didn't ever have a conversation about like, are these two things different? Is one like the other? And if not, why? That conversation didn't really ever happen. It was just sort of some people on Twitter took a position and a lot of people went, you know what, this is just not worth it for me to talk about. And I think that is, that does lead to the the type of alienation that you're talking about. Because if we, if we take like the, the vegan example or the Orthodox Jewish example, it's not just, this is how I choose to live. And that's why it's also, and all of you need to live that way. And then, you know, the extra bit of poison that's thrown out there. And if you don't, it's real bad. You're going to get called, you know, a racist or a bigot, which is, you know, not a small charge. That is a, those are big charges. So I think that's the moment when people start to go, Jesus, so Jesus. So if I don't, if I don't completely adhere to the rules, which we never discussed, you just told me what they are. If I don't adhere to those rules. And as you pointed out, like, Maybe I even want to, but I'm just not very good at it yet. It wasn't that long ago that people, they would not say, you know, a transgender person. They would say a transgendered person, which is the second one's incorrect. But it seems like a totally like reasonable mistake to make. People can make that type of mistake all the time. Their intentions aren't bad. They just aren't up to date on the latest terms. And it does feel like a world where uh, if you make if you if you make that little slip, somebody's going to go, ah, ah, ha, ha, ha. Bigot, that is a world just people don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in that world. You know, I don't blame them. We have to approach these things in a way that actually makes sense and are rules we can all understand and actually, you know, adhere to in the real world and not just just make people think, God, I don't want to hang around with folks like that. <laughs> right. And I guess what what really seems dysfunctional about it isn't the fact of shaming people. I mean, you know, people have been shaming people forever and you should shame people for doing really bad things, right? That are just clearly bad. Shame people for murder. Shame on you for the murder. I have no problem shaming pedophiles, right? Like there's nothing, shame intrinsically is not, it's an important actually tool of shaping people's incentive to behave well. The problem is when there's basically a set of rules that are, it seems basically created by like left-wing college academics operating in a very tiny subculture that then just like through no process, through no democratic process, become the rules for basically the whole elite and even sub elite world without any kind of process for vetting good rules for, from bad rules and without any kind of consistency in the way they're applied. So like, for instance, the blackface thing, why did Megyn Kelly get fired, right? She got fired for questioning whether blackface in every case was racist, right? She took for granted that in many cases it was racist, but, you know, is it racist if a little kid loves Beyonce and like out of innocent admiration dresses up like Beyonce? Okay, that was her question. That's what she got fired for saying. Can, can now, I add one thing there? 
Sure. Also, her show was on the ropes at that moment. That, that <laughs> so it was, it was a straw that broke the camel. If, if that had been a ratings hit, she probably could have survived that. But yeah, please continue. But um, there are countless people that have actually done blackface. Uh, you're blurring out on me. Yeah, I know. What happened there? I was trying to get more light in you. Oh, there we go. Okay. I'm back. All right. There, there are countless people that have actually done blackface you know, in living memory that are more culturally left figures like Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Fred Armisen did sort of honey face, Sarah Silverman, you know, all people that are sort of in good standing despite having actually done something that Megyn Kelly only talked about and she got way more flack for it. And, you know, this is why people have this sense when there's some new rule that is a culturally left rule and they think, no, you're full of shit and you're going to use this to fuck over people you don't like. And you're going to use it selectively. It's not going to be people distrust the motives behind social justice rules for good reason, because they are so often abused, applied selectively to people to, to get rid of people that basically the cultural left does not like. Okay. You know, another example is like uh, Joy Reid on MSNBC. She used to write really quite homophobic blog posts. I can't remember exactly what beliefs they were, but they were bad. Like they were really ugly homophobic beliefs that she used to hold and blog about. And they sort of got unearthed. And she actually initially pretended that her old blog had been hacked and she hadn't written them, uh, you know, as if someone was hacking her blog, writing, writing homophobic shit. And then, and then eventually she came clean, apologized for it. And it's okay. Like she's in good standing MSNBC, you know, but this is the kind of thing where if it had happened to someone that the cultural left didn't like, it would have been potentially career ending, right? And so these things are applied selectively. It's unclear what the standard is and people distrust the motive. It feels like politics by other means. Well, you're right that if nothing else, it does prove that these things can be used as weapons. It doesn't right. mean they're weapons in every case. Sure. I mean, I would, Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel, like they, they did get shit for that. They did survive it. Yeah, I don't know what that tells us. Yeah, you're right that in Megyn Kelly's instance, I mean, people didn't like Megyn Kelly. So, of course, they saw here's an opportunity. And again, that show was struggling as it is. If it had been a gigantic hit, that'd probably be a different story. I When that happened, I was at last week's night. And, oh, you know, some people in the office were just giddy. It just gets down to just, you know, personal feelings. It's like, I don't like this person. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it does prove that. But like, how, how giddy were they to, to for instance, like, destroy Jimmy Fallon. Probably not so giddy, right? Oh, uh, not, not, no, not nearly. Though that happened after I left, but no, it, yeah, it would not. But it was very much because they had a pre-existing dislike for Megyn Kelly. So, and I don't remember if the show did anything, but I do remember people in the office were very, ha ha ha, got, you know, got her. It's ugly. That's one of the things that, um, I don't think people always realize the way these, um, you know, culture war stories can be hits. I mean, you know, cable news, comedy shows. And now that I'm in the Substack world, like it's totally clear to me that the way, if my singular goal was to go out and get the most subscribers I could possibly get, just do culture war stuff all the time. Just do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Wait for somebody. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of like what the right does when the M&Ms thing comes out. It's like, wait, <laughs> wait for somebody to fuck up and then just nail them. Like, that's a great way to do it. You know what? This kind of brings it back around because you get that version of clapter that Twitter does, don't you? You say something that people feel compelled to agree with, and then they publicly agree with it. Maybe they retweet it. That's great attention for your Substack. I think that's really unbecoming. I really wish we would do that less. 
Because, yeah, the, you know, for lack of a better term, gigantic boner that we would get at last week tonight when something like legitimately racist happened and we got to go <laughs> racist. That was too fun for us. It should not have made us that giddy. It, had not, it should not have been such a guarantee that that was going to get on the show. Because, you know, coming back to your shame point, like you do want to make points about what's acceptable, what you think should be acceptable and, and what's not. You know, you do need to shame people sometimes, call them out if you want to use that phrase, but you shouldn't be joyful about it. It shouldn't be giddy and it shouldn't be the bulk of what you do. And I, I apologize if it sounded like I singled out last week tonight. That's just my experience. That's the show I happen to work at. Any show that is like really making the most of that type of content. It's personally not a show I want to watch a whole lot. And I hope that other forms of media can kind of at least pop up and replace that so that if people want to, you know, intake the less contentious stuff, they at least have that option. Right. I think, you know, people want to, as we, we're, we're always building a new culture. Culture is always changing and we're coming up with new norms, but we have to come up with norms that survive the shoe on the other foot test. Like when it's someone you like, how punitive should we be if person had bigoted opinions that they expressed 20 years ago? Whatever your answer to that question, it has to survive the person being someone that you think is good for the world, right? And what should the punishment be for failing to, for like, you know, messing up someone's pronouns, for instance? Whatever your answer to that has to be compatible with that mistake being made by someone you love. And too many of the norms that are, I think, being invented sort of don't survive that test. And, you know, when it comes to the the sort of culture war feeding red meat to the audience, this is something I try to police myself for, too, because... You know, I know I've built an audience around criticizing race conscious ideas, criticizing woke race ideas. And I make a conscious effort whenever I disagree with people in my camp to try to flag that and to say it because I think it's something you have to make a conscious effort to do or else you'll just never do it. So for instance, Biden saying that he his Supreme Court nominee is going to be a black woman. This is the kind of thing you'd expect me to be against as someone who has made an image subconscious, not, not intentionally, but who has built an audience around being against things like affirmative action, being against judging people by their race rather than as individuals. And yet I found that I'm actually not against what, what Biden did. And I tweeted about that. This is a good opportunity to give some, give my audience an opinion that they don't expect of me and to explain my reasons for it, even if it doesn't get as much engagement as it would have if I had been criticizing what Biden did. And, you know, just to go into that for a second, so I don't leave people hanging, why I'm not, why I'm not against Biden saying his Supreme Court nominee is going to be a black woman is because I don't think that the process for selecting a Supreme Court nominee has ever been meritocratic. It's always been, and probably always will be a backroom deal made in the DC politics style based on who's friends with who, who owes who a favor, who's been waiting, quote unquote, their turn, who engages in the right kind of flattery. And can, can I, can I jump in? John Shate sure. just wrote an article basically backing what you're saying. Oh, this is that is, right? Yeah. Think what you will of it. It's not new. Right. So it's not as if like there's, once you get to the pool of candidates, Obviously, there's meritocracy involved in becoming a judge of that level where you're being considered for the Supreme Court. Once you have that pool, the president is not able to tell sort of who's more qualified amongst the already cold pool of 
candidates. Biden, there's no way Biden can look at the legal dissertations of all these people and come up with the very best, right? He's making this decision DC politics style, which is, you know, it's dirty. It's how the sausage is made. It's based on who's friends with who, what's advantageous. It's not a meritocracy. It never has been. So it doesn't upset me that he's making it openly non-meritocratic where it's always been and always sort of would have been a secret non-meritocratic process. Compare that to something like affirmative action. It could easily be a meritocracy. Just stop discriminating against students based on their race. And some schools are far more meritocratic than others. Stop keeping your numbers of Asians low. Stop having like an Asian quota. Really could be a meritocratic process. So it upsets me that it's not. Whereas a Supreme Court pick at that level never will be. So point is, that's an opportunity for me to say something my, my audience probably wouldn't find more popular than the opposite point of view. And I try to take those moments and seize them. Yeah. Well, and personally, I think that's a sign of health. If we were in a 12-step program, we would say step one is admitting you have a problem, right? (laughs) And I'm not saying you have a problem. I'm saying all of us who exist in the media space, and that is, you know, media space as defined as broadly as you possibly can. I mean, defined broadly enough that I'm in it, even though I'm just some jackass with a substack. All of us in the media space have to acknowledge that we have a problem that is so real that it has a name, audience capture. For those who don't know, you know, that's when you figure out what your audience wants and you just give it to them over and over and over. And we all know this happens. We can all think of our best examples of that happening. Like I said, the second I saw that Eminem thing, I thought this is showing up on Gutfeld. And of course I was right. That's a, it's a, it's a real pressure. And if you can at least know that it's a pressure, that helps. And if you can be honest, honest with your audience, I've written a couple columns where I'm trying to be honest with my audience about the pressures I'm feeling just so they at least know. So they, you know, they know where I'm coming from and they know what, what my perspective is. And if, you know, I do have bias in what I'm writing and I think it would be r- ridiculous to argue that you have no bias in your writing. What, what the hell would that look like? My audience can get a sense of what that bias is. If you're at least aware of that, if you're at least trying, and I think this probably has to do with not just being a person who works in media, but a person, if you're just trying to be a good thinker, a person who's, you know, figuring out the world, then the path to that is almost certainly not going to be, let me figure out whatever everyone around me is thinking and let me then mimic that because that is good for my safety. You want a rational process that's going to lead you where it leads you. You know, I saw your rap, by the way. This is, I should point out, this is the first time I've been interviewed by a uh, public intellectual who's also a rapper. That doesn't happen a lot. But I, I remember in the, in the second verse, it, it's sort of like objecting to the idea that you're not allowed to think, objecting to the idea that you're not allowed to let your brain go where it's going to go. I mean, I think that really, I think people get that. I feel like I certainly feel it. I think a lot of people are going to respond to that because. It is constricting when you're not allowed to let your brain go where it goes, let, not allowed to go where reason takes you. But of course, if you are going where reason takes you, then sometimes you are going to go to places that maybe not many people are with you, including possibly your audience. So yeah, if you're never, ever, ever pissing anyone off in your audience, then I would, I would guess you're probably doing something wrong. Well, on that note, this has been a really good conversation. Your Substack is called I Might Be Wrong. I highly recommend people subscribe. Jeffrey Maurer. Mauer like flower, right? Mauer like flower. And the is Substack there, uh, is free. So if you're not, if you're like, I'm not sold on this clown, it's free. Go, go read it. And <laughs> if nice. you want to pay me, that's fantastic. And you have a Twitter handle or a website? Uh, yeah. At Jeff might be wrong. It's just a B, not the word B-E, because that would be too many characters. So at Jeff might be wrong on Twitter, but really most of my stuff is on my Substack. That's the, uh, that's the place to go. All right, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. 
If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.